Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spouting off about Variety is the Spice of Linux. Let's get into episode 37. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is the photographic eye for the colors of fall, Wendy, and the fall guy. Well, actually, he's not here. Matt. Yeah, we don't exactly know what happened to him. He kind of <laughs> dropped off the face of the planet. I know you suggested, Nate, that maybe he's playing with FreeBSD or gone FreeBSD full-time. And I so think so, yeah. He's just too busy or can't get something to work. So we're missing Matt this week. But don't worry, we'll keep the essence of Matt going during the show. By essence, like the unshowered stench of a room filled <laughs> with video game machines. The 24-hour straight <laughs> pizza boxes yeah. kind of game room. Cheetos, pizza boxes, and something else stinky. I don't know. I, I lost it right there. <laughs> <laughs> the thing we can't find that smells bad. There you go. <laughs> I got caught up in the paper bag and I couldn't get out. It happens. Uh, yes, it does. So, Wendy, we got some feedback. We did get some feedback this week and I absolutely love it. It's from Ken and he says, hello. I would like to let you know I enjoy the podcast. I also would like to let you know the YouTube channel Retro Recipes and his videos about how he made two versions of the Commodore 64 with Legos. One works, the other one is completely made with Legos inside and out. I know this isn't a Linux thing, but I thought at least two of you guys might find this interesting. Can't wait for the next podcast. Thank you, Ken. And as you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be Linux related in order to hit this show. We love a lot of different things, tech, different tech in our life. And this is super cool. Though, Nate, you said you already know about Retro Recipes. I do. I'm a huge fan of the Retro Recipes channel. The guy makes me laugh. He's very joyous. And I think he's kind of a bright spot of the internet, if you could say such a thing. And I did know about this. In fact, that Lego Commodore 64 was on the Lego Ideas page. I did upvote that in hopes that it would actually be turned into a real Lego set, like they have the Nintendo and Atari that are actual Lego sets today. Yeah. You can make an entire case out of Lego and then put a Commodore 64 keyboard into it. You can replace the keycaps of the Commodore 64 and use the Technic pieces. Yes, love the Technic pieces. That's what we use on the robot. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. you have to. But like the cross section looks like a plus. It's an axle, essentially a geared axle, I guess you'd call it. Oh, yeah. And those will actually fit perfectly into the plungers of a Commodore 64 keyboard. So that will actually work. So you can put Legos instead of the original keycaps for the keyboard. And he did all that. And I thought it was pretty darn clever. And although I haven't done that to my Commodore 64, I have thought about, like I have one that does have a missing key. I thought about maybe popping one of those in there just for fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. I will definitely go check out the videos where he's building these. I think my kids would have an absolute blast with that. Yep. I don't have any Commodore 64 parts to actually make a working one. (laughs) Yeah, we could make a full-size fake one out of Lego. Yeah, that's our next project. We've talked about (laughs) Wayland on and off on this show, and you've recently picked it up again. Is it working better than the last time, or have you already ditched it? It is working much better now than last time. There's still some funny quirks about it. Like on a multi-head 
display, the application FlameShot doesn't work like I would expect it to work. That's kind of a problem. It's kind of hard to explain, but basically when I go to take a, you know, a screenshot with FlameShot, the only one screen allows me to take a picture out of it. It's not necessarily where I want to take the picture out of, so it's, it's really just not usable for me anyway at this point. The other thing too with Wayland is sometimes the menus don't show up in the right spot when you like the context menus. So if you do a right click, if an application is spanning more than one screen, which I realize not a lot of people do that. So probably why no one has discovered this as an issue. But when I'm editing Linux Saloon, I span across two different screens where the screen above has the preview menu, the effects and so forth. And then the screen below it has all the tracks. And so if I right click or hit the menu button anyway, that context menu appears on the wrong screen and it's not lined up to where the, the menu should be. So little buggy things like that. That's really the only two issues. That also barrier doesn't work or synergy, whatever you want to call it. That doesn't work still. Supposedly there's a fix in the works that it will be a thing. So I guess we'll find out. Also, I'm working on trying to figure out how to set up all of my scenes in Linux Saloon using Wayland because some of the features just aren't there as far as like window capture. You can't crop a window. At least I've not figured out a way to crop a window in Wayland. So that could be a problem, but I have a workaround at least for the zoom screen, but it does feel a little bit buggy there or just it doesn't feel solid. It doesn't feel consistent. It doesn't seem like it's working like it should. Outside of those specific things, everything else runs great. So the lack of screen tearing, that's true and honest. It does feel smoother. Everything just seems to work really well. All, any of the drag and drop issues that I had previously from like taking files and dragging them like onto, um, like when I upload Linux Saloon, I drag in the media file onto Firefox, that all works. Dragging and dropping for like the, the thumbnails, that all works. So all those things that, those workflows that I'm accustomed to using all seem to work. It's just those little nuggets of fun that seem to be there that I don't want to have there that will be worked out in time, I'm sure. Yeah, it's been a little while since I tried it. And I know I was having some issues on Plasma where there was some really funky color stuff, but you seem to say that that's fixed. Yes. And then one of the other issues that I was having was I don't use a background picture on my backgrounds. I take one of the dark colors from the theme and I use that as my desktop color. And I typically use the color picker tool inside of that in order to just open up dolphin and click on that background color of dolphin and use that as my background color for the desktop. But that wasn't working under Waylon. And I'm kind of curious if that is fixed now too. I can tell you that it seems to be working because I just opened up a, a color selector in the system settings and I just did a random color on the screen and that does seem to be working. Awesome. I might have to give it a try again. Yeah, I think it's pretty great. There's definitely a, a very clear sense of things are just snappier. Things are just synchronized better. It's supposed to be less resource intensive also. So it should be a better video stack, I think, for the long term. And it's supposed to be more secure. So things are just... They just have to work out these new methods to work better with the software we have. So I think once they get everything worked out, it'll be good. So the reason I made the switch again was I kept having some issues where X11 would just lock up on me or KWIN X11 would lock up on me. I'd have to kill Plasma and bring it back up and it wouldn't always come back properly. I'd have to log out and log back in. And essentially, I kind of reached my limit with that. So that's why I decided it was time to give Wayland another go. I haven't tried virtual machines yet. I'm hoping that that's also been worked out. That could have me going back to X11. That's not fixed. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. 
At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. Predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth, from teams of one to teams of 1,000 with simple, powerful cloud computing. Get growing with DigitalOcean. Listeners of Linux Out Loud and members of the Tux Digital community can get started for free. In fact, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. Make sure you get started with your $100 free credit at DigitalOcean and their awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Just as there's a variety of ways to display graphics in Linux, I think that variety is the spice of Linux. There are many different technical applications of Linux, and it's really interesting to see the different ways those different technical problems are solved using Linux. One of the strengths, I think, of Linux, which is arguably also a disadvantage, is there's so much differentiation between different distributions, different toolkits, different software packages, different ways to even install Linux, and so forth. But I tend to think that these various expressions of Linux, I'll call it because I think there's an art to it, I think they're all good. Maybe not all good for you, the desktop user, but I think they are all good because they all have a specific application. The real cool thing I think about what makes Linux, in my mind, the greatest operating system to ever come across a piece of computer equipment is how Linux can be molded and shaped for its specific use case, its piece of hardware, and really for the user itself to be able to get a thing done with Linux. You know, for instance, I make no bones about it that I have a little bit of an unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. And one of the reasons for that is because there's so many ways I can use OpenSUSE from being like just enough operating system to do a thing completely headless on, you know, a very small piece of or underpowered piece of hardware, or I can use it as a heavyweight desktop environment. I mean, heavy desktop usage, I should say, where I'm managing the different windows and, and screens and such just the way I want it so I can get different tasks done. And it's flexible enough that when I change things, because I'm invariably adjusting how I'm doing something or I'm never quite 100% satisfied, I'm constantly making adjustments because something has changed or you know I'm kind of lack the uh, being settled on something. It gives me the flexibility and freedom to make those adjustments to satisfy whatever that current condition is. Wendy, we were talking about how you had a friend that you had a disagreement with about Linux and it should be more monolithic. Yeah, and basically part of the discussion broke down to Windows works really well for gaming. There's all these different things that work. Part of that is if you want to stream a game on Discord, it has sound. Like I can stream a game right now on Discord no problem, but nobody will be able to hear my game audio. And that seems to be an issue between that application and a Linux 
On top of that, right now I'm using the flat pack, so it has its own versions of issues when it comes to how that actually works out and being able to get the sound to the gameplay, but it is an issue. And because in general, generalizing that so many of this stuff works so well on Windows and there's a lot of different development stuff, let's say that works on Mac, that Linux to do the exact same thing, focus on one desktop one distribution and just make it as rock solid as possible. Now, I do see some of the highlights in that if all of the community came together and with one project, they just really beefed it up. But here's a couple downsides to that. And a couple downsides that I expressed to the friend is A, I don't want my Linux to be like Windows or Mac. I like the variety of it. And because of that variety, I get to choose the best distro and desktop for me, for my workflow, for how I want to receive my packages, how often I want packages to be updated. At the same time, if I go to hand a laptop to a family member, I'm installing it on my in-laws computer, I get to pick the right distribution for their work case. And while there are sometimes advantages to one size fits all, it doesn't mean that it's the greatest experience. Yeah, it'll work well for most, but with Linux, we have that flexibility in order to find what works best for us and then all of the other tweaking that you can do on top of it if you want to and you don't have to. The other thing that I think about when doing this one-size-fits-all approach or when talking about Windows works so well with gaming, well, yeah, but you can't blame Linux for a lack of functionality with Discord on Linux. That has nothing to do with Linux and everything to do with that proprietary application. It would be like blaming Linux for not having the Adobe suite. It's not <laughs> Linux saying, hey, we don't want you. It's Adobe that's not making the project for Linux. So while I believe and understand that downside for some people that certain applications aren't available for Linux, I think it's also really harsh to blame Linux for that issue. The other problem that was going on is an issue with NVIDIA. That's kind of what sparked this whole conversation was that NVIDIA drivers were not working. They were constantly breaking with updates on this system. And it wasn't an Archbait system. It was stock Ubuntu where this was happening, where they'd update the NVIDIA drivers weren't working. So they would reinstall Novu, reboot, reinstall NVIDIA, reboot, and be back to good. And you can only do that so long before you get frustrated. And what really destroyed things, what really caused the I am done with Linux at this point with my friend was that we'd reached the point where even reinstalling the NVIDIA drivers was causing an issue. And they're like, it shouldn't happen. At this point in time with Linux, why are we still dealing with this stuff? And once again, that is an NVIDIA issue. NVIDIA hasn't always played well with Linux. We've had Linus Torvalds giving the middle finger to NVIDIA for this particular thing. Now, <laughs> have they released some more open source stuff here recently? Yes, but that doesn't mean they're really playing ball with Linux. And that's not Linux's fault. Yeah, I totally agree. Use what you want to use. Use what works, but don't blame Linux for things that it's not its fault. I'm not sure exactly the struggle that your friend was having with Discord, but I do know that like when I do any kind of streaming, I'm always using OBS. So 
maybe a good workaround would have just been setting up OBS and then that could mix the streams and send it out to the Discord maybe. I don't know. I really don't know how it works. I've never done that before. Yeah, that really wouldn't work because the way you stream on Discord, and I've actually did that. I did that yesterday with the same group of friends as I started playing Creepy Tale again, threw that up, was streaming in a voice chat with some friends, my gameplay of Creepy Tale. And you can set it to capture just the game window. You can set it to capture the whole desktop. You know, you really have a lot of flexibility with that. But the downside is... And it doesn't matter which distribution you're on. I know that this particular friend and another friend spent a lot of time like trying to figure out how they could get the sound to come through on Discord and they just couldn't. So hey, if there's anybody out there that can stream on Discord with sound, share your secret so I can also pass that secret along. But I haven't been able to do it either. It's just not capturing the audio and sending it across on the gameplay. And if you're sending it out to YouTube, that's no problem. Then OBS works great for that, but it doesn't work for use in Discord. I wonder if there's a way of using pulse effects and routing things through that. Because right before starting recording here, I expressed to you my irritation how Audacity was picking up your audio (laughs) and not my audio. Yes. I'm willing to bet that flipping the right switches and easy effects and the audio, I still use pulse audio, the volume thing, that between that, there's a way that you can route things. And also I know that there are the different ways you can route things like with Jack or with Pipewire having Jack functionality. I've yet to play with actually. And I'm willing to bet there's got to be a way to be able to route things there as well. I know that watching Ryan do some of his routing, which looks like a Christmas tree, you know, like uh, from uh, a Christmas story when, you know, everything's plugged into one plug there and it, it could fire off a breaker or something. But looking at how he routes things around, it makes sense to him. There's probably a way to route things as such like that. I just haven't personally played with those features. I have not had a need to, so it's not really been a thing. Right. Typically, there is a solution, but the solution is not always self-evident. Now, without maybe a little bit of digging or whatnot. And it could be like, I mean, I don't know what distribution he's running to. But I'm, I'm guessing. And this was all on Ubuntu. Okay. So you would think that the NVIDIA drivers itself would be a little bit more stable in that case. Yeah. It seems to be across the board, regardless of Linux distribution where that's happening. And it, Jack might be a good fix around for that. Now, Jack in and of itself, I think it's an amazing tool. And I'm so glad we have it. Every time I've looked at Jack, I myself have gotten completely overwhelmed with it. Yeah, I've not actually used Jack, like actual Jack, but I know that the ways you can route audio in Pipewire like it is Jack, so that flexibility of Jack with the simplicity of Pulse Audio, essentially, I think should be pretty straightforward. And it's something you can, I think, just flick on and off at will. But again, I don't really know how all that works. I do know that there are switches and basically like a patch bay they can use, like if like you'd see on a rack, you know, in a sound room or something. But yet I know there, there's a way to do patching to get all those things to work. It's how Michael and Ryan get Destination Linux to do all the fun things it does with the patron rooms and, and everything else. So I know it works. I'm quite confident that there should be a way, a workaround, just because Discord doesn't allow that functionality there is a way to make it work in Linux. There's got to be. I would hope so. I would think so. I just don't know how to do it. So like I said, it's another shout out to the community. If you know how to make it work, I would love to hear how you are currently making that work. Continuing on this topic, like Spice of Life, that's kind of why we got into this overall topic. Some of that we discussed last week with Lore. Right. So it's taking a universal style package and turning it into a negative. The flat packs, which are probably of the two 
newer universal packages, the one I use the most, flat packs, snaps, and app images. What do you think this variety in universal packaging, and Laura's not the only one out there who does something kind of like this. I would say it's very unique in all of the additional add-ons that it has, but there are other managers out there that can pull in packages that aren't native and make them a native package. What do you think this does for the ecosystem of Linux? Well, I think it's very important to be able to deliver software in such a way that's easy for software developers to get it to the end user. That's the ultimate goal. Just because they develop software, there's no vehicle to get to the end user, then what's the point, right? The way we've been doing it for a long time has been the native packages. And there was like the Loki installer that was in there as well, which is like a universal installer from decades ago. But it wasn't really something that would be easily managed by the system. And that really was where the problem would be is if that installer didn't have a proper uninstaller or whatever, then you could have potential issues, which I still think the Loki installer is a valid way to do it. So Flatpak, I think, is great because it delivers the software to you in large software chunks. You can have different, let's say, releases, like LTS releases of like Plasma that a developer can target so that they don't actually have to include all the widgets and all the other supporting libraries. They can target like a platform of sorts. They can target a specific runtime and then deliver the software based on that experience. So it delivers the software in what I would consider to be like reliable chunks for the end user. Now, it does take up a little bit more space in the hard drive because, hard drive, on your storage, because it's just the nature of how it's packaged up in the way it is. And it does work pretty reliably. I think snaps are very similar. I feel like snap is a little bit more commercial, targeting like actual like business software, software from like third-party vendors, closed source software, to deliver that to end users. And Flatpak's probably a little more, uh, maybe a little more of the Wild Wild West, uh, maybe, perhaps. And then they have AppImage, which is that's built into the kernel. In fact, I think it's I think Linus Torvalds developed that, or he he actually has a piece of software he used AppImage to distribute it. And so that's another way. And the neat thing about AppImage is it allows you to manage software in a way that, like especially if AppImage Launcher, which I do have running on, on my system, it allows you to be able to keep many versions of software. So when you install the latest version, if there's a problem with it, it doesn't run right with your system, you just select the other one in your menu because it's right there and then getting rid of it as you see fit is as easy as a right-click remove and then it's gone. And so it's another way to manage software, but it has its own encumberments like it, you can't do automatically do updates, which can be good or bad. Right. I see both sides of the argument of whether it's good or bad. If it did the automatic updates, then you probably wouldn't be able to have those multiple versions saved. Exactly. And, and that's the reason I like AppImage because it allows me to ha- keep those multiple versions. Like the software I use for doing the lights on my house to program those, it's called X-Lights. That's delivered as an app image. And I like it because sometimes they're cranking out new versions all the time. And every once in a while, they crank out an image that is a bit of a dud for me. Like it has issues. I can't do a thing with it. Yeah. And so I just go to the older version. An update comes. I use that one because, you know, because people report bugs. And then like it never even happened. I didn't have to worry about it. Like I basically, I, I, I roll back without having to really roll anything back because it's delivered in a self-contained executable, essentially. Right. So to me, that is super handy. And I think that, that has its place as well. But like Lure, if you have something like a really tight, small, lean system, like let's say, you know, Alpine Linux, which we just did on Linux Saloon, you don't necessarily want to have these giant flat packs in there. And when you're looking at your entire size of the computer or container being a few megabytes, you don't necessarily want to have a flat pack or a snap be a part of it because all that extra stuff that comes along with it. 
which is fine for certain use cases, but maybe not your use case. So that diversity of methods of delivering software, I think, is at Linux's greatest strength because now you can tailor make a thing, whatever it is, a piece of software for a very resource limited piece of hardware. You can make that a possibility because of all those options. What it ends up being in the end is a reduced amount of e-waste that goes into you know, a landfill or has to get reprocessed and all the spent energy in doing so because you can keep using an older piece of hardware that still does its job because you can shape the software for that specific purpose. And, and I don't think there's anything else out there that really allows you to have that kind of flexibility. Yeah, there really isn't a universal package to rule them all. Yes, I did just pull a Michael. I am aware of that. I will take the blame. <laughs> it's okay. You pulled it off well. I actually, I think you pulled it off better than Michael. But that's my opinion. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> But all of these different universal packages have their positives and negatives. And even though there isn't this one universal package that's come to highlight above all the others, and it's just so amazing, it's the one everybody uses, like truly universal, I think all the options really do have their place. And it fits within that culture of Linux where you have choice as to what you're using and how your software is delivered. Now, if we do go look at something, say one of the other operating systems that are out there, you now have the stores, which you can get it from, and I think Mac's a little bit more locked down. And then sometimes you have to go digging for software, and sometimes it can be really, really hard to find a reputable place to get that piece of software, this driver, whatever you need. And while, yeah, I've pulled things from the AUR, the Arch User Repository, it never feels as sketchy to me as looking for an EXE. And I'm on this website going, okay, how much of this is virus and how much of it isn't? I know Linux can get viruses. There is no system out there that's immune from attacks. But there is, and maybe it's a false comfort level, but these other places where it's still, all I can say is like less sketchy in pulling some of these packages that I need. And universal packaging in general, I think, helps with that. And now you have options. You've got so many options and how of that is delivered to the system. And I don't want any of them narrowed down. I remember listening to the last yell, I can't remember what number it is, I'll make sure I drop it into the description, and they were talking about snaps and flat packs in that episode, and they'd come to, come to the conclusion that they really prefer snaps for when it comes to servers, and then using flat packs on desktop, and that could be a great way to do it. <laughs> and then you have the same thing that we kind of touched on earlier, you don't always want your software being updated really quickly. As you were talking about your one that you have with Flatpak, you can kind of control that, roll back, everything's good. Some people want like really steady rolling and they're willing to deal with some of the potential issues that that comes with. And other people absolutely love Debian. Actually on Mastodon recently, I think it was Debian that won on like a multiple head-to-head -head poll. I will share a link to that also in the description under the main topic because I found it really, really interesting that Debian is still so incredibly popular. And to me, there is no way I would personally want to run it. It runs so slow. It would be like 
pouring out molasses in the middle of winter and watching it drip. <laughs> like anybody who has dealt with molasses or lives in really cold weather, you understand that reference. It is extremely, extremely slow. <laughs> right. And not my cup of tea. But I don't have to have something that slow. I can run Manjaro. Right. And I think that's actually one of the other brilliant things about Linux in general is some people need that slower, more molasses-like moving distribution like Debian. And some people need something a little bit with a little faster cadence, you know, like Fedora, which I think they're like on a six-month release cadence, I think, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, they release every six months, but you do get decent package updates from them. Right. So it's kind of like a, another way of doing rolling without really being totally rolling, which is a strong aspect of Fedora and allows them to be a little more leading edge without necessarily causing a lot of breakage. And then, you know, OpenSUSE has got Leap, which is like a one-year cadence and tumbleweed which is you know multiple times in a week you can get the new shiny and each of those have their benefits and their drawbacks but it's not like one is a better system than the other necessarily there might be a better system for you or better system for this use case which i think is what makes the various distributions right for you and then you using manjaro which is essentially arch I mean, I got sorry about the Arch people who are not going to like that, but... <laughs> yeah, it's not full Arch. It is Arch-based. It does have some slowdown when it comes to particular releases. They do have their own repo that I pull from, not from the actual Arch repo, though I can use the AUR, of course. So I wouldn't say it's full Arch, but it's definitely Arch-based. It is far more rolling and updated faster than Fedora is, for sure. Right. So I think the thing there is it fits your use case. Now, you had a specific reasoning for going to Manjaro for taking advantage of hardware to do photography work. And so you had to get something that worked for your use case. And although I can understand there should be just a one distribution that you can do all these things, but I just don't think that's possible because people are different and tasks are different. And sometimes you can't have something fit where it just doesn't fit. You can't put a square peg in a round hole. Right. I could fix a lot of things with a hammer, but I can't fix everything with a hammer. Right. You can also break a lot of things with a hammer too. Oh, yes. I've <laughs> seen my husband do it. Especially if you, you know, just lose your cool. You don't mean it, but you know... <laughs> Yeah, these things happen. Side note, my husband was working on a motorcycle and there was a part that was stuck. And my oldest daughter, she was little, like really little, probably two and a half, maybe three. And she's like, hit it with a hammer, daddy. Just hit it with a hammer. It actually came loose with the hammer. So sometimes it fixes it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes <laughs> I go Megillah Gorilla on something and you know, it's like, well, just a little more force, a little more force, a little more force. And then I end up breaking it. There's that too. Those things happen. And, you know, I don't want to break my computer hardware because I have a little bit harder time fixing that than I do, you know, more mechanical type things. Right. And it's typically not the hardware I'm taking apart, though I have been known to do that, especially when adding new thermal paste, thermal pads, all of that fun stuff, cleaning things down. But some people like to tweak things more than others. Some people like to have faster moving distros than others. And not everybody needs a GUI. You and I prefer to update through the terminal. Matt prefers to update through a GUI. I have a Raspberry Pi in front of me that I only access through SSH and that's how all of the updates are done. It doesn't need a user interface at all. The one that we're going to be using for robotics, it has a user interface on that one because we're doing all of the coding directly inside of 
that user interface on the board itself. The point there is, you know, you don't want to waste resources and resources are come down to dollars and cents on something you don't need. Absolutely. And if you don't need a display on a thing, then why have a display on a thing you don't need a display on? Like it's an unnecessary extra step. And that's, again, one of the beauties of Linux. Like we did an exploration of Alpine Linux on Linux Saloon and I had a lot of fun with it. By reading through like what its its target was, I thought, well, I'm going to have fun with this and I'm going to set it up to do a terminal-based desktop using Tmux. So I could do all the things, be like almost like a tiling window manager, but in the terminal with Alpine Linux. And so I installed W3M and I could do web browsing in the terminal on a different virtual desktop, essentially. They don't call it that, another window, essentially. And so all these different little things, like they work perfectly. And I could see a use case where, you know, I might want that, you know, running maybe on a Docker image or, or on a Raspberry Pi or maybe just some underpowered, you know, low powered piece of hardware that just does some very simple menial tasks. And so it's perfect for that use case. And I could probably do it with OpenSUSE with just enough operating system, JEOS, you know, release of it. But Alpine is specifically tailored to do something like that. And then it's package manager, APK, super fast and how it delivers software. I think it's great. These different package managers, they're kind of like a competition of ideas. And, and I think that they all help each other out. You know, there's, you know, rising tides raise all ships is what, something I firmly believe. And I think it's really cool Alpine Linux exists doesn't use GCC. It uses something like I think called Muscle instead. I might be saying something wrong there, but uses different things that work better for its use case. And I think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to summarize that there are some issues with Linux, but overall the variety is one of the things that brings people in and keeps people here because it is very individualized for use case, work case, update speeds, packages we want to use. And I love to see this shelf full of spices, full of spicy Linux. Absolutely. Hello, Magneto here. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we, well, that they use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password as well as additional authentication such as master password and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your password safe. From me, Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. $10 premium account includes... 1 gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, or Duo, Vault Health Reports, and TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, and Priority Customer Support. Make the smart move, like many from the community have, and go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. If you're like my wife, Sinister Wendy, You'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially since the Premium Edition only starts at $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for supporting this episode of Linux Out Loud. Magneto out. Well, Wendy, with the absence of Matt, it looks like you are going to be the gamer enabler today. That I am. And this game was actually shared with me before the show last week from none other than Matt. 
It's called <laughs> Brutal Vengeance. If you are a rock fan, a metal fan, and a fan of Jack Black, you will absolutely love this game. I got to play it for a little bit, and you start out the game with the Jack Black taking you into a record store, which was a lot of fun. Pulls out this secret record, and that's your access into the game. The other thing that I found really, really interesting, and if anybody has watched a lot of Jack Black stuff, not just School of Rock, but the other stuff that he has out there, you know that language can be a part of the game. And it <laughs> asks you, do you want the language or do you not want the language? And then huh. you are actually like going to fight some demons and stuff inside the game, you know, hard rock metal style. And it asks you like, how much gore do you want? And you get those choices inside of that. Of course, I wanted to play it like full game style so mine has the gore and the language as part of it. It's a really fun concept. I've really enjoyed the game. Now, it's not the best for my skill set. I am not very good with games that you need to be fast-paced, hitting the buttons at the right time. One of the interesting things about how you move the character around, so the mouse controls your camera view and then your... WASD buttons is kind of how you're doing your walking around, you're moving. And that really throws me off at first because I'll be walking along and move my mouse and like totally throw off my camera angle. So that is one thing to keep in mind if you're playing this game. Sometimes it works great for people. It's definitely not one of my upsides, but that's okay. Even though it's not a game I'm good at, it is absolutely a ton of fun. And I highly recommend it to any of you rock metal Jack Black fans out there. I like the Ozzy Osbourne caricature in there as well. That's pretty awesome. Yes, absolutely. It is that very, <laughs> it has that very like 90 early 2000s metal vibe to it and I think that's absolutely yes. fantastic yes this came out in 2013 and you can feel it just in the gameplay absolutely it's definitely something that does appeal to my generation and the character looks has that Jack Black look without like a ripped Jack Black look to it and I, I really yes. appreciate that yes and he voices the main character yeah which is great it's yeah. so much fun here's a fun little Jack Black piece of video game trivia did you know that he did the commercial for the original Pitfall game for the Atari? No, really? In like early 1980s, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. I have to go look this yeah, up. You have to look it up. And it's great because it's so Jack Black. He is who he has been since he did that Atari commercial. His entire life. <laughs> yeah. And now he's starting in a video game. Well, obviously, it's nine years ago. Yeah. That's fantastic. I don't know this is necessarily my kind of game, but I'm going to put it on my wish list just because I think this is just absolutely precious. It's probably not the, the adjective that he would want me to use, but it's absolutely precious <laughs> in my eyes. It's definitely silly. It's a good laugh. And the only way I can describe it is it's got Jack Black humor in it. If you are a fan of Pick of Destiny, also very much not kid friendly. But if you're a fan of Pick of Destiny, I think you would enjoy this game. Greatest song in the world. <laughs> <laughs> a very positive review. I laughed so hard while playing it. That's the thing. You got to laugh when playing video games. If you're not laughing, right? having a good time, exactly. it's not. what's the point? What's the point? Yes, exactly. Now we're going from something that is a ton of fun to something that is absolutely not fun. Nobody wants a broken key on their keyboard, especially when it's a laptop keyboard. Do you have a fix coming or how's that going to go? Yeah, I have a fix coming. So this happened on my HP EliteBook 840 G7. So it's not very old. It's a 2020 
laptop. And I know like a guy like Ryan, he doesn't keep a laptop for what more than six months. He wouldn't know what this is like, but I'd like to run my hardware for many, many years. Like my target is like somewhere between four to six years. I'm going to keep using a thing sometimes less. I mean, I think three is a good number of years for a thing, three or four years. So like the previous laptop went for four years. The laptop before that, actually I used it for 10 years until Latitude D630. Although I did replace the keyboard in that once, but that's because something actually damaged the keyboard. And then I put a keyboard cover on it. Well, the scissor mechanism underneath the T key has worn out in such a way that when I push the key, it pops off or like kind of gets slightly ajar and then it pops off. That makes it really hard, especially when your root password includes the T key or some other things that you do. I mean, how many times do you use T to write a thing? I mean, any contractions or many contractions, I should a say. A lot. It is a pretty common letter in the English language. I couldn't write host-related interests easily without a T key. Right. I mean, there's there's four T's right there in that, that, <laughs> that small little phrase. The computer's still under warranty, so I could probably get a new keyboard for it. But before I did that, I thought, well, the whole keyboard is not messed up. The key still works. Like the contacts still work. The issue is the scissor mechanism has failed. And so I tried going through the HP help, but it was, I kept going in circles on that one. So I decided I'd purchase a whole new key for it to pop in place. Although they contacted me saying they didn't have any more T's. So they're just gonna send me the scissor mechanism. And they sent me instructions on how to like separate the mechanism and, and everything else. So anyway, so that should be no problem. I don't have the scissor thing yet. I just got confirmation today that it's on its way. But what I did was to make it work temporarily. And it's not, I just not really a temporary setup. This is something I really should have done a while ago, but I got a silicon keyboard cover for it. So I, I put that over all the keys. And so it essentially it holds the T key in place so it can't pop out. It does get slightly, I don't know if a jar is the right word, but slightly canted, but not so badly that I can't still use the key. So it's completely usable right now just not usable well. And I'm going to keep that silicon cover on top of the keyboard because I kind of wonder if maybe something might have gotten under there or, you know, when I stepped away from the computer, if like a cat or a child or heck, maybe a chicken, I don't know, jumped on the keyboard <laughs> and might have done something to it. So I'm not going to necessarily blame HP, although I don't see how that could have been a failure mode. And maybe, I don't really know. I'm going to keep that on there just to protect it from my kids and any of the other living creatures that happen to be around me. And hopefully that replacement part will make it good as pretty and twice as new. So anyway, very irritating to have that happen. I was actually working one of my side hustles. And so I was away from home. I was trying to get some things done, uh, ready for Linux Saloon and also some other stuff, you know, writing an article. And I had to stop writing the article because I couldn't, every time I hit T, it would pop off the keyboard and I oh, couldn't no. really use it. So it was, basically I had to like, you know, stop everything and waste the day of sorts. So very frustrating. I don't feel like new laptop keyboards are as good as the ones from like 10 years ago. I think Apple kind of ruined the keyboards because of that look that everyone started basically copied. Oh, yeah. I don't think those are as good a keyboards. I don't think it's as good of an assembly method as what was around previously. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong on that. You turned your back for two seconds and the gremlins came and yep. popped off the T on your keyboard. It is really cool that you're going to be able to affix just that letter and not have to do a complete keyboard swap. Right. Are you going to have to pull the keyboard out of the laptop in order to fix the part? Or can you do this all with the keyboard still in the laptop? I can do it all with the keyboard still in the laptop. Nice. And the reason I'm going this route first is because I looked at what, what it would take to actually replace the keyboard. And that looks like an all day affair. And I don't want to have to deal with oh, that yeah. because the keyboard is on the underside of the shell. Older computers, in 10 years previous, you could pop like a little plate off and then screws would keep it on and then come right out. That's not the case now. And so that means I have to work a little harder to pull it out. And I just don't feel like doing that. I mean, I can do it. 
I know I can do it, but there's so many other things that I really would rather do with you my time. You can do it, but that's really difficult assembly if you have to completely gut your laptop in yes. order to pull a keyboard out. That includes taking the screen off, disconnecting all the antennas, disconnecting all the cables Holy that connect, moly. you know, like your everything from the screen into the main board, and then pulling all the CPU cooler off, all the fans and everything out, removing the motherboard, and then you can get to the keyboard. That's just a lot of work. And I just, just don't feel like doing it. That's really what it boils down to. Remind me when I go to buy my next laptop. It'll probably be a laptop for a kid because I'm not a huge laptop fan. I love my desktop. Understandable. But when I go to buy my next laptop, remind me to do some review checking, some iFixit checking and see how that keyboard comes out before I purchase <laughs> it. Because that does sound like an all-day nightmare it probably is and, and there might be a way of doing it without having to disconnect everything like in my mind i'm thinking when i watch the instructions i bet i could just get away with removing the cpu and all those bits keeping the monitor attached flipping everything out instead of disconnecting it and then pulling the keyboard out i right. bet it could be done that's just not how it was described on any of the instructions and the nice thing is hp they do have the whole bottom plate actually has captive screws or the lower plates so you're not going to lose those pieces it's None of the screws are hidden. Oh, nice. So it is designed to be worked on. And I'm willing to bet that maybe the way it was described to do it, I bet there are some workarounds on that and I would have probably found them. Right now, I just don't have the headspace for that. I got a bunch of other things that are just really weighing on me. And the last thing I want to do right now is gut an entire computer for the T key. But if I can get a little scissor piece, pop it in place and it'll work and spend $7, that's worth it. Even though I could probably get the keyboard under warranty. Good luck with that. I hope that that's all it needs in order to fix it. And I'm pretty sure we'll be hearing about how that fix goes and how it works when you finally get that part in. Absolutely. And I'm going to keep that silicon cover on there. Tell you what, anything to preserve the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse form, drop us a line under this video or on the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com slash contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, Gamesphere, Linux Loon, and more at tuxdigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I Pause the Game to Be Here shirt or join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome sode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. 